Hey listeners, Dennis here. Here is the original recording that I did with Maria Frost, the transportation director at the Washington Policy Center. If you haven't had the chance to listen to the miniseries Upward Social Mobility, have a listen to that. She was featured in part two of that miniseries. And to do her justice and just to bring forth a conversation that I think a lot of people need to hear, I wanted to publish the entire recording that I had with her as we talked about a lot of different things when it comes to transportation policy. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Wisco Weekly is proudly supported by one of my longtime favorite partners, Automotive Mastermind. For those looking for marketing automation solutions and predictive analytics software in the automotive tier three space, Automotive Mastermind is the people and company you need to go to. Check them out at automotivemastermind.com. And now let's get into this episode with Maria Frost. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitaita, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the show. And boy, do I get to revisit with one of my favorite guests. And truly, as a matter of fact, if you get the chance, watch this on YouTube. I'll probably post this one on YouTube. Her makeup is on point. I got to tell you, Maria, your your skin is very smooth and beautiful. Is that is that Zoom or is that... Like in real life, are you as porcelain as you're coming across right now? It's just makeup. <laughs> it's just makeup. <laughs> well, listeners, I want to play for you something that hopefully depicts my guest. And, and I already said her name, Maria. She was a previous guest of the show. But I want you to hear something about her. And hopefully we'll, we will continue the conversation based upon this. That's part of my mission is to bring clarity um, and transparency to this conversation to bring greater accountability to public officials, to empower citizens to articulate their positions, to make their voices heard. I think some people have you know, trouble even talking about some of these things because they are complex. I have trouble talking about them. And so you know, that's where I hope to be useful, to make sure that there is still an active, vibrant public forum for people who have different viewpoints than what is, you know, trending in, in our very, very blue state. Maria, you said that to me the last time we chatted, and I took that to heart. And certainly, we, I think we recorded about a year ago, or maybe over a year ago. And you certainly convey yourself to be that way, that you are figuring things out, but you obviously have more knowledge, and you can articulate things better than others. And you are looking to kind of spread these messages of transparency, of communication, of these issues. After hearing that comment after a year, what do you think about that? Um, I think that's still true. You know, I, as I've been researching more and learning more, I find that I'm a little bit more hesitant sometimes to, to speak on certain things because in fact, I think when I started, I was more confident than I am now, <laughs> because as I'm learning more, I'm finding, you know, how complex these issues really, really are. And it makes it difficult to, to kind of just speak on an issue because I'm asking myself 10 different tangential questions, you know, is this right from this angle or that angle? And it, it you know, so it's, it's nice to hear to hear that and be reminded of, of that. I feel a little bit less confident <laughs> these days, but I think it's just because there's more information that I am juggling and processing, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I feel like I want to go deeper into that conversation, but that maybe gets to a little bit more of like a personal diary than you know, an actual professional conversation here. L let me just ask one follow-up on that. With regards to the, you know, all the information that you're gathering and, and you know, the, 
the analyzations of these topics and how then it kind of is um, staggering your confidence. Is it, do you feel like you're kind of torn on certain values that you held you know, dear once before that now there's, there's, it's not that you have watered them down, but again, maybe, maybe they're just not as a a huge priority. No, I'm glad that you asked that because I, I feel very confident in my values. Those have not changed. And I feel like the, the things that I have learned have, have indicated to me that I'm on the right path. You know, working for Washington Policy Center, we're a free market organization promoting free market ideas. As you know, my background, I'm a Russian immigrant and have always been kind of drawn to that. But the more that I'm learning, you know, on the one hand, I'm a little bit uneasy, you know, when it comes to talking about maybe specific issues because I know there's 20 different things I wanna say about them, right? But on the other hand, it's been really validating that kind of the core values that I have and that are driving the organization that I work for are correct. They are morally correct. And I believe in them. And I believe that what we're fighting for is good. And so I guess in that sense, I feel more confident. I guess there's just different levels of confidence. (laughs) Yeah, I I hear you on that. Uh, You know, just a quick side note. I I had a previous guest on the show. His name is Sam Blake. He's a reporter at Dot LA. And he's a a native of Detroit, but a resident of Los Angeles. And he's in his early 30s. And after talking with him, he too kind of struggles with – you could call it the outcome is probably confidence, but internally it's just the struggle of like, well, who am I and what is, what is my place in this world? And, you know, I, I feel like I was him 10 years ago after the 08 financial crisis, but I certainly feel now like I'm more emboldened that a lot of the decisions that I made throughout the last 10 years were the right ones more or less. And again, it's just strengthened my resolve in the things that I say now and the things that I do. So I can, you know, I, I, I can understand where you're coming from. And there are certainly other people that I'm talking to that are also kind of fighting this internal battle and, and they just don't know kind of to your point, you know, earlier or the, the point you made to me in the last episode is that sometimes they just don't know how to articulate themselves. And, and I, I think that what you do online through your social media is evidence to how you want to promote people to critically think through issues. And so kudos to you. Thank you for, for doing that on behalf of all those that follow you. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, that, you know, as, as just giving thanks to you for your work. Thanks. I mean, I think that when you know what you value and what you believe in at your kind of at your center, yep. it, it frees you up to ask uncomfortable questions and to dive into research topics in a, in a different way because you, you're not, you know, on a personal level, you're not kind of floating around not knowing what to believe in. You know what you believe in, but because you know what you believe in, you are, are um, at least I am, more comfortable going into the nuances of issues, right? Like last time we talked about the road usage charge. You know, it's a very nuanced issue, and I'm comfortable talking about it that way because I know what I, what I believe. Uh, sage words right there. Listeners, I hope you took those words to heart right there. All right, Murray. So <clears throat> you said something to me in our last call uh, and you said this phrase and I, I gravitated towards it. And I want you to share more about this. You said tactical urbanism. What the hell is that? Where can we find that? Is it good? Is it bad? Tell us all about tactical urbanism. Yeah. So you know, as you've seen during this COVID crisis, there's um, streets that are being closed all across the world with that public space being given to um, pedestrians and bicyclists and even restaurants. So we've seen that in Boston, New York, Barcelona, Paris. We've also seen that in Seattle, Montreal. (laughs) And so that's being called tactical urbanism, which is defined as low cost temporary changes to the built environment, usually in cities. And so that includes using cones, barricades, greenery, whatever you have to basically repurpose existing roads, Mm -hmm. right? Existing public roads um, 
to turn that into, you know, pop-up bike lanes or to give that space to restaurants so that they can have that more outdoor seating. It's, it's promoted as, number one, as temporary, and number two, for specific health outcomes, so for, you know, to promote social distancing during COVID. But I guess what makes it tactical is it's not what it's being sold as, right? These, hmm. generally speaking, a pilot project is, is intended to assess whether a policy is going to work in the long term or to, you know, deal with a short-term crisis. Um, there's usually an analysis afterward, whereas tactical urbanism is advancing policies that, you know, activists and policymakers have predetermined will be temporary or, or permanent, that they want to have be permanent um, without any subsequent analysis. And so that's what we saw in Seattle when um, the city of Seattle closed 20 miles of neighborhood streets. They said it would be temporary to help with social distancing. Um, and within three weeks, that pilot was made permanent. There was no analysis. There was no public engagement. And the effect of that, that policy was that residents who had supported those closures initially were outraged because they weren't included in those discussions. So they were expressing their frustration on Nextdoor. They were expressing their frustration on, you know, blogs. They felt totally left out and they didn't understand why we had to make the policy permanent when we're not even out of the crisis yet. So, I mean, how, what would this look like after? And the same thing happened in Montreal on Notre Dame Street where people showed up to work you know, at their business or their office. There was no longer parking that they normally would have for their customers. There were lanes that, you know, their customers who drive depend on that were no longer available. And people were so outraged that officials actually walked that back and removed the barricades, which was pretty incredible. So this is kind of like guerrilla warfare politics here where, you're talking about changes that are being done. Now, those changes, though, were they initiated by government or were they initiated by private business? You know, in, in the sense of a restaurant was like, okay, well, we're allowed to dine outside. Let's set up our shop right outdoors and, and we're good here. And then the government came in and said, okay, your restaurant, your place of business that is occupying public roads, we will keep that as is. And now that's policy. Is that how it's kind of working? I mean, the request really can come from from anyone. I mean, there are cities where you've you've you know you've got residents who are supportive of of these ideas. You know, generally speaking, people who who can't afford to live in the city are not going to to care or need these these policies. In fact, these policies would make driving more difficult. Um, would make it more difficult for those folks to access employment. Right. Whereas people who live in the city would probably really appreciate, <laughs> you know, an outdoor restaurant and outdoor dining and all of that. I tuned into a, um, an event where there were actually a couple um, tactical urbanists on the panel. And I thought it might be interesting to share with you what they said, because it really, and, and these are folks in the in the private sector who work with transit agencies and planners and so on and so forth. By the way, do they label themselves as tactical urbanists? Oh yeah, I mean, I oh. think I think people who are tactical urbanists are really proud of of being tactical urbanists, and they feel like I feel like they. I would imagine they think they're being really strategic and smart, and you know, taking you know, an opportunity and trying to do what they feel is righteous. Wait, are they using the buzz phrase of we, we base our decisions off data and science? I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> <laughs> so like, let me give you an example. So Tiffany Chu is the CEO and co-founder of Remix, which is a company that helps cities plan and expand transit. And she said, every planner's dream is kind of coming true in this really horrific way that no one ever really intended. And then she goes on to say, it's a really good time for cities to embrace the temporary. And I think what that means is if you say, okay, we're going to try this temporary project, it removes all the stigma of what could go terribly wrong. If you put an umbrella of pilot or temporary over it, it makes it much more digestible and probably don't read next door while doing it. And I thought that was a pretty callous thing to say. In other words, she's saying, look, we're going to lie. <laughs> Basically, we're going to mislead people. We're going to try to, you know, 
reduce political blowback by calling it a temporary project, but really we're seeking to, to make the permanent policy more digestible, boil the frog, right? And then while we're doing that, people are gonna get mad and you should expect that. So don't read next door and blogs because you're just gonna see people who are really upset and you don't need to be exposed to that because they're doing the right thing. And eventually they'll appreciate what we're doing. I mean, that's kind of the attitude that I got from that. And so they admit that these, these are, you know, they're selling these projects as temporary, but really it is permanent. And I think what makes it most appalling to me is these are generally kind of unpopular transportation poli uh, policies um, and promoting them as temporary. Number one is deceptive, but number two, using COVID to do it is especially appalling and really disappointing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the second one, did you, you said you had another uh, tactical urbanist quote too? Oh yeah. Um, so this one came from a mobility policy principal at Stantec, Greg Rodriguez. Stantec? Yeah. Okay. Um, all of this sounds fine and dandy, but how do we provide the cover for elected officials to help incentivize them and help encourage them to have the political will to make some of the temporary decisions permanent? How do we evaluate and use the data to help justify decisions? How do we reframe their conversation to say these solutions may be temporary, but the goal is to make them permanent? So, I mean, thankfully they speak for themselves, so I'm not just making this up. <laughs> Well, so this does indeed describe more tactical urbanists, which, again, going back to at least the way that I'm defining it, it is this kind of guerrilla warfare activism that is, let's, let's, you know, trial by error, let's do these things, but under the guise of this is going to be permanent and let's use all the influence that we can to ensure that public policy officials make this permanent. Right. And I guess the problem with one of the many problems with that is if you've decided that a policy is going to be permanent, where's the room for analysis? Where's the room for public comment? Not just to check mark it off your list to say we allowed for public comment, but where is the engagement with the public? Where is, you know, listening to what people want? That doesn't fit into an equation where, where you know, planners have decided something is going to be permanent no matter what. And I find that pretty elitist. Yeah, and to that end, I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about is how during COVID, I, I've never been more aware of the dichotomy between an essential and a non-essential business. And that dichotomy and the definitions of essential versus non-essential was never discussed, I don't think, at least not during COVID. I don't know if it was discussed 30 years ago when they did make that delineation, but essential versus non-essential businesses was never ever discussed. And it was only government that defined who was essential and who was non-essential. And again, I think this goes back to speak towards how, you know, in a, in, in a public forum, you want to be able to encourage public debates on these issues before they become policy. Right. And you, I mean, you want to encourage that debate and make, you know, make sure that people don't feel that participating in that debate is in vain. A lot sure. of people feel like even if they go and express their opinion on an issue, they're you know, it's, it's not going to be heard that officials are really going to do what they want anyway. And, and that that's happened, right? So it's not, it, that concern is, is very valid because we've seen that time and time and again. And I hope, I want us to move away from that. I want government to move away from that and engage more with citizens rather than plowing forward, regardless of what citizens say. Now, so maybe this will be a natural transition, maybe not. So can, you know, what undergirds tactical urbanism, can that be linked to um, I don't know, philosophies such as smart growth? I think so. Um, so, yeah, smart growth, I've, <laughs> smart growth ideology really permeates all of those things. Okay, so before, you, okay, okay, so then if, if that is confirmed, so... Listeners, I want to read to you a passage from the book Gridlock by Randall O'Toole. Um, let's see. We have, <clears throat> here's the quote, or here's the passage. Smart growth is based on the premise that Americans need to drive less to reduce congestion 
energy consumption, and environmental impacts. To reduce driving, the vision calls for spending more money on urban transit, inner city rail, and bike and pedestrian facilities. The vision also calls for reducing the average size of lots for single family homes and increasing the percentage of people who live in multifamily housing or mixed use developments, both of which are supposed to reduce driving. So Berea, based on this uh, passage out of this book, share your thoughts on this passage. Yeah, so I really disagree with this approach that if you care about energy consumption and having a positive environmental impact, then you need to do everything you can to reduce driving. <laughs> um, it's kind of singularly I, too focused, right? It's like the like driving is the worst of all worse, and if you just stop driving, then everything else cures itself. Yeah, and so I'll share a couple things with you. You know, I think this is a really backwards ideology. And as I mentioned before, the Washington State Department of Transportation Secretary is the former vice president of Smart Growth America, and he brought this very ideology to the Department of Transportation. What's his name? Uh, Roger Millar. And so, you know, he, you know, under his leadership, the Department of Transportation really functions less as a transportation agency with this specified servant role and more as a like a large amorphous government body that grants the right of mobility to people only insofar as government agencies determine that that's appropriate in you know alignment with their planning ideology. And so, and last year, oh gosh, where do I start? See, this is where we have 20 different tangents to go on, but let me begin with this. First of okay. all, there's this connection made between environmental impact and reducing how much people drive. And that connection is not meaningful because vehicles are increasing, increasingly more fuel efficient. So according to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, though driving between 1970 and 2018 increased about 90% nationally, the sum total of carbon monoxide, particulate matter, and other toxic pollutants declined by 89%. And that reduction was achieved not by pushing people onto transit, but by targeting the technology of individual cars, right? Not travel behavior, but the individual technology of, or car, the technology of individual cars. And so those cars were made increasingly more fuel efficient and that trend still continues. So if reducing greenhouse gas emissions is really the sincere goal, the way to achieve that is not through policies that <laughs> that ultimately actually increase traffic congestion and fuel consumption, but to support innovation that will make our vehicles, individual vehicles better, because that is how people want to travel. And then you have policymakers who are saying, okay, well, transit is still more energy efficient compared to driving. But according to the National Transit Database, since 2016, transit has used more energy than the average of cars and light trucks together. So the reason for that is because transit requires more energy to move one person per mile. And if you look at, and actually Randall looked at, Randall O'Toole from Cato, looked at the top 100 urban areas in the nation and found that transit emits more greenhouse gases per passenger mile than the average car in 93 of them and more than the average truck in 90 of them out of 100. And so that's happening because ridership is declining on transit services. So, right? that's, so, that's, so, that, so, that, so that's really the conundrum there. It's the fact that ridership is declining and it's not really achieving that, you know, max levels of optimization of having riders, uh, you know, moving riders on a vehicle such as a large bus that would counterbalance what it took to make that bus and maintain that bus and put it on the road and whatnot. Right. I mean, the assumptions even before COVID were that these buses and light rail would be crammed, jam-packed. Um, and, you know, especially post-COVID, <laughs> that's, that's not a reality. Well, we're, not, we're not really post-COVID. We're, we're still we're in COVID. We're in COVID. But in COVID, and even I would say post-COVID, I think that trend will continue for, for a while. And so, you know, even as you know, ridership has declined, transit agencies are still expanding, still spending more public money on operating expenses, on electric buses, but those efficiencies 
are still not compensating for that continued ridership decline that started before COVID. So going back to this idea that, you know, if you want to achieve these environmental impacts, you've got to push more people onto transit and focus on managing travel behavior. Those things haven't worked for years, right? In the Puget Sound, transit market share has stayed pretty much the same for like 20 or 30 years. And yet this is what they keep throwing money into, billions and billions and billions of dollars to achieve is that, what? Is, is, that a, is that just an ideological stranglehold on the reason why you have, you know, things like mass transit not being as effective as what is being promoted. You know, the fact that mass transit is promoted in such a way that it's supposed to do so good for the environment to decongest everything and it hasn't worked and yet it still is being promoted during COVID. It'll be certainly promoted at, you know, post COVID is that just an ideological bend or is there just, is there intellectual dishonesty about the data? Like what, why is it that there is this fallacy that keeps continuing to be perpetuated that urban transit, mass transit is a way to lessen uh, the environmental impact of transit as a whole? I mean, I think it could, I think two things can be true at once. On the one hand, I think it's totally dishonest. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you've got leadership at transit agencies who are just trying to keep the agency afloat and who are not interested in kind of reforming and reinventing transit in light of everything that's going on. They want to cling to this traditional transit model, no matter what. On the other hand, I think there are people who work at transit agencies or who work at planning agencies who really believe that they are doing the righteous and the moral thing and the data be damned, you know? And so and that's really tough. And, and for those folks, transit is a religion and they accept these truths without really engaging with the data and with the trends and with what people want because they feel like, look, we have to plan society in a certain way and this is the right thing to do and it will produce the right outcomes and a better quality of life. And I think that's the wrong approach. They're taking public money and spending it on systems that are underperforming and that are not serving the public that are doing a disservice especially when they're imposing regressive taxes um, to achieve to achieve those supposed benefits so you know there's no better case to illustrate the righteousness of some of these public officials than what uh, Gaviner Newsom and Andrew Cuomo did I say Gaviner Newsom Gavin Gavin. Yeah, I think you meant to say governor and yeah. Gavin, and you came out of Gaviner. <laughs> Gaviner. You know, that, it's a new name for him. Gaviner Newsom and Andrew Cuomo <laughs> and how they defied the CDC orders and have basically, you know, disregarded the data now with, you know, with regards to COVID and, and how, you know, spreadable it is. And so therefore people don't need to get tested. And so Newsom and Cuomo are like, nope, we're not going to follow CDC data anymore. We're going to go about it our own way. And, and again, I think that speaks to the righteousness of some of these public officials. All right. So we've talked about smart growth and how smart growth is a, is a would you call it, it's not a policy. This is just what a, a philosophy then? I would call it a misguided ideology. <laughs> I don't know. All right. So smart growth is a misguided ideology that says that in order to better the environment, to better congestion, that people should just stop driving. And Dennis, before you continue, one more thing on that. I totally forgot. So the Department of Transportation, which believes in this ideology that we need to reduce driving, that, you know, they've said we can't reduce congestion. The secretary has said congestion is a problem that can't be solved. The age of highway building is over, Right. And yet, a couple years ago, when the toll lanes were failing on Interstate 405, the Department of Transportation opened a shoulder, opened capacity to alleviate some of that, some of that congestion in the toll lanes. So they, they provided capacity when it served them. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, really sums up how disingenuous this ideology is that we need to reduce driving that congestion can't be fixed that we need people you know push people onto transit when you look at all of these anecdotes when you look at the data i think it really undermines that entire statement and shows that look this is not this is not not only is it just not true not factually true but 
um, it's also, there's just something kind of nefarious about it and, it, and manipulative. It's, it's very nefarious and manipulative because it's like I, I do, you know, you had mentioned a point earlier on, on why it is you think that some of these public officials are doing what they're doing. There is the righteousness side of it, but then there is almost this kind of responsibility to the people that they're leading. And I think that is where you're, I think that's where you're going to find a lot of the nefariousness and the manipulation coming into play. Because I do think that if these public officials were not in these leadership roles, if they were, I don't know, a ranch owner and in their ranch, they had these, I'm, I'm saying ranch because I'm watching the show Yellowstone right now. And so everyone is, yeah, oh, it's, oh, it's fantastic. Apparently. Fantastic. Um, so anyhow, so if you did have this ranch and you had these roads that were part of your ranch, I mean, you would certainly probably look at it in a different way when you're looking, when you're considering the whole ranch, versus, hey, the agency I'm in charge, I employ 500 people, I need to make sure these 500 people keep their jobs, and going to be making policy decisions as a way to maintain the status quo and probably even grow it so I can receive the aid, so I can receive more money, so I, whatever it is. And so I think that's the nefariousness, the disingenuineness that sometimes occurs in public, in public policy decisions and public policy in general. Yeah, maybe that's just politics, you know, and that's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Okay, so we have smart growth. So uh, there, there's a counter to smart growth, or perhaps maybe not a counter, just a, 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 a different opinion on it, on, on how to um, exist and, and how policies should be derived uh, in urban environments, and that's the efficiency vision. And so again, reading a passage from the book, Gridlock, Efficiency vision is based on the premise that the resources available for transportation improvements are scarce and should be used as effectively as possible. The vision relies on user fees rather than taxes to pay for transportation. Transportation decisions are made by setting goals, sometimes called performance standards, and rank ranking transportation projects according to their ability to meet those goals. Goals could include congestion relief, energy savings, pollution reduction, and safety. Reducing driving is not a goal, but merely one possible means to attaining some of the other goals. The projects that achieve the goals at the lowest cost are selected. So this already conflicts with the smart growth, what, do you, what did you call it, manipulative ideology? Uh, misguided ideology. M misguided ideology. One of the things that stands out in this efficiency vision is that they're using user fees rather than taxes to pay for transportation. Can you maybe talk a little bit about user fees and how that juxtaposes against taxes? Uh, yeah, so I think there's two things there, right? There's the issue of user fees and performance-based evaluations of transportation projects. So on user fees, I think user fees are a good way to judge what people value and want rather than what urban planners and politicians want. User fees really come from the user's pay users benefit principle, which recognizes that people should pay directly for their use of a service or like a highway <laughs> and receive a commensurate benefit in return. And so those who don't use a public road or service should not be obligated to pay for it. And so the current gas tax system was created precisely on this principle. And so it worked, it has worked really well um, until politicians decided to <laughs> take the money and divert it to pay for other things like mm -hmm. transit, right? We still see some of that at the federal level. We see that at the state level um, across the country, Washington state, you know, we're fortunate in that we have the 18th amendment, which protects gas tax revenue um, from that kind of diversion. It can only be spent on roads. I like the user fee system. I think there are you know, I think there's a couple problems when you start diverting or diluting user fees. Number one, it becomes very difficult to measure demand. It becomes difficult to determine whether or not people really want a service. So when I talk, talk about transit use, 
I have to catch myself because I talk about, you know, I've, I, in the past I've talked about transit demand, but instead right. I've started to say transit ridership. Like what is the actual ridership? Because I don't think you can measure demand because we don't know if people are really willing to pay what it costs mm -hmm. for those trips, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to rail, which is incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the second problem is I don't think it's a sustainable way diverting user fees is not a sustainable way to fund transportation because agencies are always going to find themselves um, lacking because they're, as they draw money away from systems that people are depending on that people use and want to fund systems that fewer people use and that require more money to keep running on a very large scale like transit you end up seeing both systems suffer it's just not a sustainable way to do things. I'm not opposed to some subsidy for, for public transit, but generally speaking, I think user fees are the best way to understand how much people want a service or, or a public good and whether or not to continue to, to spend and expand that service. So I, I would, I, I fully agree and support uh, the idea of user fees. Again, I think that that also stems from my background in the private sector. It stems from my, um, you know, foolish mission in life to make sure that everyone and everything delivers this excellent customer experience. So I'm, I'm all for the, the user fee. But let me share this with you. And again, I think this is going to be one of the complex issues and the nuances that uh, maybe we just have to figure out how to, how to, best approach this. So, you know, another guest that I had on the show, it was a gentleman by the name of Paul Comfort. Paul Comfort is apparently a 30-year veteran of public transportation, served as a CEO of the Maryland Department of Transportation or something of that nature. Anyhow, he said something to me that it's kind of obvious, but I guess in talking about user fees, it makes me think about the conversation I had with him in which he goes that public transportation is not a business, but user fees technically in my eyes actually leads you down the path of ensuring that you are a business, right? Because again, like you said, you're, in, you're trying to see, you're, you're trying to gauge ridership. You're trying to gauge data and all of that metric is defined by the price of that user fee. And so you know then if, if, a, if a driver is going through a toll lane and there's that toll lane is, is $2 and there's lots of ridership on that, that's a great indication that perhaps you can maybe increase the price or maybe the price is right. Contrary, if that price of that toll lane is like $15 and no one's doing it, well, that's an indication that you, you didn't price it correct. Those are... That's an operation that would bode to be business oriented. But again, Paul Comfort is saying that transit is not a business. What would you, how do you respond to that? Well, I don't know the answer to what the appropriate level of subsidy should be for transit. That is a, like, that's an impossible question for me mm. to answer. And I wrestle with that a lot. Mm. I think it's an important social service. It's a service that my family and I depended on when we immigrated here and we did not have access to a car. But the moment we could access a car, we did. And it improved our quality of life substantially because my parents could go to more places. They could, they could go to two jobs each, <laughs> which they couldn't do before. Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, so, I mean, so, you're, you know, we're talking about how public transit is not a business, but the user fee to me is a business model. And I'm, I'm wrestling with yeah. the fact of, well, so then how do, how do we find some sort of middle ground of not necessarily finding what the right subsidy is, but more the mindset? Because again, we're, ta we're talking about smart growth. We're talking about efficiency vision, but, we're also having public officials and you know, I'm going to, I'm going to use Paul comfort as a, as an example, because he's been in public government, you know, he's been in government for so long that he is saying what the mindset, what the normalcy is of government officials in transportation. And that is, we are not a business. We just yeah. we take the money, we allocate it. And that's that. And to me, 
again, there's still something missing about what he's saying, but also, I guess to a certain extent, right, government is not a business, or should they be a business? So, I mean, I, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first being that we're in a unique position now in light of COVID where transit agencies can evaluate who, who really depends on, on their services to continue to get to work, right? People, a lot of people um, that take transit make like over $75,000 a year. And those people I don't think should be subsidized. I think they should pay the full cost of their trip. So I think current ridership trends could be helpful in determining, you know, the right size of a transit agency and the right level of service. But I think transit agencies have another unique opportunity to, to find um, better ways to serve people and more cost-effective ways to serve people so that those people who are making, you know, less than $25,000 a year are not subsidizing a service for users who can pay for the trip, the full cost of that trip, just fine. So I think that will require that transit agencies expand their thinking a little bit and become, you know, maybe more, rather than operating service directly, start to think about ways they can coordinate um, trips for people. So work with the private sector, work with ride hailing companies, work with um, different private you know, trip providers, take off buses from routes that are not productive and find different ways to get people to where they need to go who still need that service. Um, and it yeah. may be in a more micro transit kind of model. And so those are kind of, and there are cities that are you know, exploring that who are, who are partnering with the private sector to do that. I haven't seen the same really from transit agencies in our state, um, which are you know, moving forward with their light rail expansions and, and everything as if nothing, as if we're not in a pandemic and an economic crisis. It's pretty Well, I think the ad advice to, um, for, for public agencies to you know, better partner with private companies should be a bit measured, especially after the examples you gave earlier of the tactical urbanism quotes or urbanist quotes and how, you know, sometimes these private companies also are guising uh, their intentions of what they want to happen. And, and perhaps, you know, you, you are going to have companies like Remix and I don't know Remix, but I've, I've heard that name plenty of times but you are going to have companies like Remix who are going to shout a narrative that only benefits them and not necessarily the public good. So but transit can set parameters, right, Donna? So there's this great publication by Brooke Feigenbaum from Reason that I'll send to you okay. on how transit agencies can contract out transit service and, and what that and, would look like. And listeners, I will add that uh, link to the episode page. So if you want to take a look at that uh, that article, uh, visit the episode page and you can take a look at that. I'm sorry, go ahead, Maria. Oh, no, no, you're fine. So, I mean, I think he provides some really concrete, like practical ideas for how that can be done, how transit agencies can put in parameters and like boundaries into contracts to make sure that people are really being served because they know their customer base well. Um, you know, they can put in incentives, they can put in penalties, they can put all of those things into contracts to make sure, you know, to try to prevent those types of situations from occurring where people are not being served. At the end of the day, though, I, I don't believe that government doesn't have like a profit motive. <laughs> I wouldn't call it profit, the, you know, the way that we would think about in terms of the private sector. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think, generally speaking, government officials tend to view taxpayers as piggy banks. I mean, no I, I, so it, there's, it, it's not a profit motive per se, but it is a motive. And, you know, transit agencies, at least sound transit in the Puget Sound region, you know, they have contracts with developers, right? As they, as they, you know, give them land to develop transit oriented development um, those are all kind of lucrative things with a lot of money involved. And, and so it's not, I think it's more complicated. 
than than just making the assumption that government is is just well-meaning all the time. I don't believe that. Yeah, it, it's it's very complicated, and you know, to your point, how sometimes you find it hard to articulate things. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and I don't know how to articulate it, is you know when you do look at some of these policies and some of the taxes that come out of it, and how long these bonds are essentially, or how long a tax can stay in place. So, you know, and one of the things right now that I'm experiencing is that, you know, I'm in, I'm in the process of looking to buy a house. And I don't know if you have this, uh, a similar tax in Washington, but we have something down here called Melarus. Do you, do you have that? Does that sound familiar at all to you? No. So Melarus is essentially, it's a small tax attacked onto your property tax that helps fund, uh, you know, parks and and schools and helps support the community right and that's usually set up through a bond and it's a 30-year bond now the thing is as i'm as i'm looking at places to buy i don't i don't know if i'm going to be in that particular city to take advantage of that melarus but yet i'm going to be paying into it and at some point 20 years later someone else is going to get the benefit of it and i don't know how to wrestle with that because again that goes going back to the user fee model right if I'm a user paying into this Melarus tax, I'm not going to be getting the benefit of it by the time that schools are being built and my kids are going to that school and parks are being built and then my kids are going to that park, right? That's not a user fee model in that case. And that's one of the issues that I'm having to deal with over here. And so this idea of long-term taxes, I don't know what the solution is, but I'm hoping that post-COVID, we start to look at things not from so much of this long-term perspective that we kind of do either deregulate or we look to provide more liberties to people so that it doesn't affect them over generations. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, heard, I've, heard, um, I've heard a little bit of this before, and the typical response that I've seen is, look, I, Dennis, I'm happy to pay for things, you know, and to pay into a system to help other people, even if I don't benefit from it myself, right? That's kind of the typical response. And um, I would say, and, and I, my colleague Todd Myers would say, look, you can pay into that system right now if you'd like. You can send the government a check. So why don't you do that? Mm -hmm. Right? And they, they don't. <laughs> I mean, so that's, it's pretty disingenuous. I mean, I think that was one of the things that uh, was always discussed about Warren Buffett and him advocating for the the wealthy being taxed at a higher rate, and he's okay with it. And it's like, okay, well, Warren Buffett, you can easily <laughs> issue that check if you want, man. <laughs> Just go ahead and do it. But he hasn't. Yeah. So, um, well, so Maria, let's let's wind this down here. Um, you've provided this great framework for listeners to consider uh, how policies are being determined. So thank you for providing all the information with regards to tactical urbanists, for smart growth, for efficiency vision. You're a very well-rounded mother. I was going to say gal, but uh, we'll, we'll be more PC. You're a, a well-rounded mother. Uh, especially during COVID, it seems to be the case that, as you're experiencing, you said that there's sometimes this confidence that you're wavering in on the, le on the level of confidence you may have. I think the only thing that really kind of cures all of this is some sort of, you know, knowledge and education and hence professional development. Can you share with us maybe some of the things that you are either doing during COVID or maybe what you were doing pre-COVID as a way to help professionally develop yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I think reading. Reading. Are you, are you a voracious reader in general, even before COVID? I've always loved to read. I mean, I, ever since I learned English, I loved to read. I grew up on Nancy Drew and Roald Dahl. You know, I really wanted to be Matilda. <laughs> let me, let me share with you this. So, so obviously uh, English is a second language for you. And, you know, one of the reasons why to have this little personal moment with you uh, publicly, yeah, I have a personal moment publicly with you is uh, there's like this man crush that I have with you. That's kind of similar to like my wife in that my wife, uh, English is a second language, but you would never know. You would never know that because she doesn't have the accent of her people from the Czech Republic. And same thing with you. Um, you don't have an accent at all. Um, and so it's, 
I don't know. It's kind of, it's interesting. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. I mean, we've been here for over 25 years and I came here young enough to where that, you know, my parents have a very strong accent, but they're also, you know, very fluent. So, right, so Matilda, so you reading, so, that's not the only thing. Okay. Um, I would also encourage people to um, attend public meetings and um, use their right to request public documents from public agencies. So everything that I research, everything that I do, I do using publicly available information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I understand other people have different jobs and they don't have the time and I get, you know, I get paid to do this research and that's, that's a great privilege and I'm excited to do it. But if you have the time and the interest and you want to be more engaged on public policy in any area, but specifically transportation, um, attend, you know, transportation commission meetings, attend, um, you know, legislative transportation committee meetings, Senate and house, um, look for those opportunities. And especially now with, kind of the way things have changed with COVID, everything is available virtually, pretty much everything is recorded, which makes it super convenient um, to do. And I kind of, you know, when I attend these meetings, I consider them classrooms, okay. an opportunity to really, to really learn. And not all the material is exciting. Some of it is boring as it would be in a typical classroom. <laughs> But a lot of it is really illuminating. You know, the quotes that I pull from the secretary, the quotes that I've pulled from um, other public officials, I have done that by listening in on these meetings, by taking notes, um, and through public disclosure requests, sending agencies questions and saying, look, so-and-so said this in a meeting. I would like all internal and external emails and documents related to this and that, right? So like for the city of Seattle, there's street closures. I want all documents related to these street closures and how this policy was developed and how this policy was made permanent. And that public disclosure request is still coming in in installments. They usually take months to respond. Um, but can, can any average citizen, I mean, so any average citizen can do that, but mm-hmm. is it as effective as someone such as yourself that actually has the backing of the Washington Policy Center? I don't think it matters who you work for. If mm. you if you submit a public disclosure request, the agency has an obligation to respond. It doesn't matter who you are. A public disclosure request, and in, okay. And in fact, I think that you know a lot of agencies are take a little bit more time now to respond to me because they know chances are I'm looking for information, I'm doing research, and I'm probably going to write about it. So they take their time in sending me information. Um, and, and getting back to me. Some agencies don't respond at all if I send an email and then I'm forced to do a public disclosure because they don't want to correspond by email or by phone. So I would argue that regular people who don't, you know, blog um, or do any of this kind of stuff for a living might have a, a quicker response time. Uh, so in attending public meetings, like what, what would be like, you know, I, I can imagine that even myself as extroverted as I am, I would go into a public meeting and just kind of be a deer in the headlights. You know, when someone goes to a public meeting, how do you, what would you recommend how they were, you know, how they navigate themselves in that public meeting? Well, you just, you just listen in, you're muted, your camera's off. And you oh, just, this is online here. I see. Yeah, this is all online. I mean, people, people aren't going to, I don't expect anyone to drive down to a meeting, especially now if everything's Mm. accessible virtually. So you just, you get, you know, you register. A lot of these meetings are free and, um, a lot of them are free. Not all of them are free. Well, all the public meetings are free. There are some that I attend like for conferences and stuff like that that you pay for, but, um, and just take notes. And, And some of them will even allow you the opportunity for public comment or to ask a question that you can type into chat. Um, so things like that. I, I find them really, really useful. That's the, where the bulk of my, you know, information and research comes from, from attending those meetings and those public disclosures. And of course, you know, reading the reports, right? Government agencies love writing long, very long reports and going through those and becoming familiar with the language and and skimming them over time. You'd be surprised how much you learn. 
you know, I can see why maybe if it is the case that they found an adversary in you, it's because it's not really you as it is they found a voracious reader. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> a lot of the best stuff is buried in, in paper. Yeah. All right. Well, share with us one thing then uh, during COVID personally that you are doing to cope with COVID, to hang with family, to be proficient in work? What's, what, what's something that personally you're doing that is helping you through COVID? I've really enjoyed gardening. Oh, that's um, right. Actually, I remember seeing something on your, your Facebook, although it was a hashtag fail gardening. Probably. probably. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are you gardening? So, you know, we, we're fortunate in that the house we moved into has raised garden beds and the person that lived here before had, you know, which I've always wanted. So I, I planted a number of herbs and vegetables and flowers, and it's been a lot of fun kind of watching them grow. And I really, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I, I decided to pull out a couple carrots that I planted and they were so okay. awful. They were so awful and wait, and, awful in the way they look and or taste or just look. Um, or what? I think look, they were really, really deformed. I think I planted them incorrectly. Um, I, I didn't realize there's a certain way that you're supposed to plant carrots. And after I don't even know if they were ready to be picked because the next day they were really soft and I had to throw them away. I couldn't even eat them. Hmm. So well, I didn't want to eat them. Um, <laughs> So we'll see how the beets come in. I've got beets and peppers. Oh, the zucchinis, I mean, you really can't mess up on zucchinis. If you want to feel like you are a great gardener, just plant zucchinis and you're going to feel wildly <laughs> successful. <laughs> they don't stop growing. And I planted a couple pumpkins so that we have pumpkins in November that my Perfect. son can pick. Um, I, I um, planted a watermelon. I've never seen a watermelon grow, but it's starting to like the grow and there's no watermelon yet, but the plant's going. <laughs> do you ever play that game Farmville? No. Do, do you know that game? Does that name, does that game ring I've a bell at all? I've heard of it, but I've never played it. Uh, I don't really play um, like games. games. <laughs> it's definitely a guy thing to do. Although uh, my mother-in-law is a very avid player uh, of Farmville, at least when it was around. Um, so anyhow, with think, when you're talking about growing watermelons, like when you grow watermelons and you sell watermelons, you get like, you, you got like the most bang for your buck uh, by selling that particular fruit uh, of all your crops, you know? So oh, interesting. They are pretty maybe, expensive at the store. Yeah. Um, and mint, mint also grows like a weed and it'll make you feel pretty, pretty good about yourself. <laughs> but generally speaking, I mean, a gardening, Gardening is kind of tough and it's expensive. It's really expensive to buy the plants to start with if you're not doing it from seed. And also water is expensive. Um, our water bill has like doubled. What? So with our sprinklers and the hose and everything, cause you gotta keep, you know, especially during, you know, weeks where we have 80, 90 degree weather. I know that's not an issue for people in California, but in Washington, I mean, it feels like death. At least to me, it <laughs> I can't wait till autumn. <laughs> So gardening has really taught me, you know, patience and discipline and watchfulness and, you know, learning from mistakes. So I'm really excited to, to try some new things next year. Well, as a Russian immigrant, you may have perfected the English language, but uh, there's still the Russian girl in you that is much more akin to liking winter weather than, than summer weather. That's for sure. I think so. It's my cold, cold heart. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, uh, you could find Maria Frost on Twitter, on Facebook. I will add her information on the episode page. Maria, thank you for being on the show. And thank you for, for, for providing some framework uh, and your perspective on these things. Again, as from the first time we recorded and your thought process of wanting to be this uh, person that helps people articulate things. I think that's exactly what you've consistently done since the first time that you and I met. You're still doing it now. So kudos to you. Please continue to do the work. Uh, and listeners, be sure you do check her out. Be sure you follow her. And as we end every episode, cheers. Prost. Lachaim. Kipis. Nastravi. Salud. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsin. Gambe. Yamas. Nastarovie. Vos. Salute. And saude to the customer experience. 
Hey listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Maria Frost of the Washington Policy Center. Be sure you check out the episode page to find some of the passages and notes and links and all that good stuff. Don't forget, if you're liking the show, give us a like, give us a review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and I can't wait to get a little bit closer to you. Be sure you visit DedicatedLane.com. This is a one way for listeners to become members and for you as a member to get some nice benefits from yours truly. DedicatedLane.com. Check it out. See you next week. 